Hello, and welcome to We Can Be Heroes with me, Paul Burston. This is the podcast in which my guests are invited to wax lyrical about their heroes and heroines, people who've inspired them and helped shape their lives. I'm an author and journalist, and there are many people I consider heroes, both real and fictional, famous and not so famous. Among them is the late, great David Bowie. And each one says something about me, because the people we regard as heroes often reveal who we are, our strengths and our weaknesses, the struggles we faced, and the times we've shown courage we didn't even know we had. It's been said before, but it bears repeating, not all heroes wear capes. We can all be heroes, even if it is just for one day. I've been trying to sell the idea to, to venues and festivals that it shouldn't just be a reading, but it should that should be the beginning of something and it would develop into a big kind of queer night out, which is what happened last night. Um, so we had a couple of poets on supporting me who I'd been mentoring for a while. Um, and then we had our lovely conversation, did a performance, and then it kicked off. I'm your host, author Paul Burston, and that was today's guest on stage in Liverpool, where she performed and I interviewed her as part of Writing on the Wall Festival. She's a poet, playwright, novelist and spoken word performer. Like me, she's from a working class background, and like me, she's someone who had to create her own platform within the worlds of live arts and literature. She's someone I've known and worked with for the past decade. So I was over the moon when it was announced that she'd won the T.S. Eliot Prize. It is, of course, the mighty Joelle Taylor. Joelle won the prize for her latest book, Kunto, which is both a celebration of butch lesbian identity and a testament to a time and friends long gone but not forgotten. As she told the audience in Liverpool, this book came from a place of grief. Tackling tough emotions is nothing new. Joelle's previous book, Songs My Enemy Taught Me, dealt with sexual abuse. And although it's written from a female perspective, it struck several chords with me. So I'm doubly honoured to have her on this podcast to talk about her heroes, because she is one of mine. But first, let's get back to that night in question. Here, in Joelle's own words, is how it all ended. It was literally me dancing like a <laughs> maniac around the room, because it was all the old 90s club tunes I'd been revamped a little bit, so some of them had a bit of a, a kind of drum and bass or jungle sort of background, um, but quite a few were just unreconstructed gay music, whatever that is. Um, and so, yeah, I just was really, really gay. But after all the performances and everything, we lost a good sort of two-thirds of the audience left. So it was really just me and a couple of old women with menopausal tits jumping <laughs> up and down until we were asked to leave. <laughs> this is... We Can Be Heroes, my podcast, and we invite our special guests on this show to talk about people who've made a big impact on them or who've inspired them in some way. So who is your first one and why have you chosen this person? Okay, so this is a little bit complicated. It's okay. not a person, it's several people. And generically, they're known these days as the Rebel Dykes. When I first came to London, I was early 90s and I was a little kind of skinhead dyke in my little leathers. 
I came across this group of um, this group of women who'd been at Greenham Common. I'd been at Greenham Common too, and there's a kind of lesbian activist route that went from Greenham Common and out into the Scots of London around Hackney and Brixton, those areas. And they were just really this in incredible, uncompromising commune of really, really badly behaved women who were all incredibly hot as well. They all had fabulous skinheads or they were wearing very high femme clothes during a time when you really didn't do that. And they are my heroes because they taught me that I could be myself. You know, they taught me um, that all the kind of ways I was living, which was in a very punk, do-it-yourself manner, you know, it, these are the times when we were creating our own magazines. We were creating our own clubs and, you know, um, activist groups. The Rebel Dikes kind of encompass a lot of different things for me. Um, a lot to do with Greenham Common, which was an incredible experience to have as a young, a young woman, particularly in the 80s when the, I was saying last night, I mean, I can't drive a car because it wasn't considered something that women did where I come from during that time. So to hear about a group of women who'd literally, a group of nuns, who'd walked from Wales to uh, Newbury in, in Berkshire to protest against American cruise missiles and neoliberalism and the patriarchy, was incredibly inspiring. It meant I could do what I wanted. I might not be able to drive a car, but I could drive an idea. I could drive my own life, you know. Um, so that was, and also an aspect of Green, Greenland, which isn't really discussed, but you can see in the Rebel Dykes, is that it was a hot hotbed of lesbian sex. <laughs> this is essentially a massive cruising ground. I mean, I know we call it cruise missiles, but that's what we meant. <laughs> you were cruise missile. <laughs> I was, darling. Um, so I never really think, or maybe that's just where I was. But, um, and it, you know, it was a nine-mile perimeter around Greenham Common, which meant there was a, a plethora of different kinds of women from different classes. I'm working class. And that was really important to me, that I was connecting with women from those backgrounds. So they all moved on, and they kind of exchanged cha chaining themselves to the fence to chaining themselves to the bedpost and became this kind of big pro-sex dyke movement of the 90s, which I think characterised the 90s. Um, and then very recently they released a film called Rebel Dykes, which centres on one kind of commune. Um, commune. <laughs> one kind of house that they all lived in. And it's a celebration of working class culture as well, even though not all the women there were working class. They are heroes of mine because they showed possibility. I knew some of the women that were involved in the anti-clause 28, campaigning against clause 28. Mm. I worked at a market research company where one of them was a supervisor and I also knew them from the Bell and they were the women who invaded the BBC studios yes. from the news broadcast. They were, that's part of the rebel diet. Yeah. So I want to absolutely, whoever they are, I want to buy them dinner. Yeah. Um, yeah, um, just to say, I mean, I'm sure everybody knows about it, but these incredible women Different sets of women. Two women broke into the music tent. Yeah. Was sat on by Nicholas Witchell. And I can still remember the plaintive cries from under the desk. Stop, Christian 28. <laughs> um, Sue Lawley battles on. We appear to have been rather invaded. <laughs> and then, again, another set of women hid themselves in House of Lords toilets with bits of rope, upsailing rope, and upsailed into the House of Lords. 
So those, yeah, I'm calling them all the rebel dykes. It's the really badly behaved, wrong-walking women. Women who do it wrong all the time. Um, and they were the first women as well um, who had tattoos. Back then it was very, it was the, the province of homosexuals and criminals. Um, and, you know, and a couple of dykes with dodgy tattoos of Martina and after a logo. See, I can remember that time very well. I was at City Limits magazine by then, and I can remember that my experience as a young gay man was of mixing with women all the time because that was just how I'd always been. And But when I first arrived on the scene in the mid-'80s, you didn't often see men and women mixing together. They were mm. quite separate. And that by the early-'90s, lesbians and gay men in London certainly had sort of come together and had also come together because they were going to Sadie Maisie, which was a yes. kind of mixed lesbian and gay fetish club. Absolutely. We were all at Sadie Maisie's, Chain Reaction. Chain Reaction. Because yeah. you remember the project against lesbianism was that we were... One of the rebel dykes is a trans woman called Roz... What's her name? Caveney. That's it, Roz Caveney. And she had a really good description of lesbianism at that time, which is that it was holding hands in 43 different positions. So to have a, an actual filthy, dirty club where women were allowed to be sexual. I mean, we didn't even know how to be sexual, a lot of us, because it really, as women, you're kind of disconnected from your body to begin with. If it's you know not for a man, then what is it for? And then as lesbians, again, all the literature is literally about uh, being feeling really upset and pained and being in love with someone and it being horribly wrong. That's lesbian literature. It's longing. It's built on the idea of longing. Then suddenly, out of nowhere, you've got Pat Califia, Dorothy yes, Allison, Cherry Smith. I remember, I remember that impact. Yeah, so all of these incredible human beings, these women... Being very sex-positive. Very sex-positive, and it being a political right. You know, I mean, I was very... I was obviously marching against the clause. I was obviously a part of all the major mar demonstrations during that period of time. But to march for your right to have sex and to enjoy sex, to have the female... <laughs> I've got a friend um, who has this great phrase, which is, it's not for the male gaze, as in the eyes, but the female gaze, like that. <laughs> That's like, this is exactly what uh, it taught us. I'm glad you said that, because one of the things I find interesting about that period is how much there was a cross-pollination and a kind of learning from each other. Mm. The gay men that I was friends with learned a lot from lesbians that we were friends with about feminism, about sexual politics, underpinning mm. our gay politics. And I think a lot of the lesbians that I knew, first of all, they were all watching gay male porn, which was really eye-opening to me. Um, plus, the the way in which they went about claiming sexual spaces was very much modelled on the way that gay male men behaved. Yes. So they were trying to set up lesbian saunas and lesbian cruising grounds yes, and things yes, that were yes. very strongly associated with gay men. Yes. It was almost like a gay male, I wouldn't yeah. say appropriation, but they were kind of... No, there was. I was one of those. Yeah. I was one of those. It was, it was straightforward appropriation. Oh, it was, okay. It was absolutely straightforward <laughs> yeah. appropriation. I mean, I, I remember the handkerchief code and using the... Uh, we all had... Yeah, all the sort of leather dykes were absolutely copying men. And, you know, even in terms of our own behaviour with each other, the names we gave each other, the way we... I'll talk about me personally rather than others, but it helped me to understand my own body. I, I kind of became more of a woman through thinking of myself as a gay man. 
the, the, the violence against women, the psychological violence against women from the moment you're born means that dysphoria is, I think, really common. I, th I, I mean, I see it everywhere. Yeah. It's expressed in different ways, but we're kind of chased out of our own bodies in so many different ways. So our project was really, we impersonated gay men as a way of being more like women. I mean, trying to go cruising, a lot of us did. We loved the idea of casual sex, but because there's only eight lesbians in the entire world, <laughs> you knew each other. And also it wasn't very hot because you get chatting. <laughs> so really it was about us learning to be sexual beings with our own agency. It was about misogyny, about internalised misogyny, internalised lesbophobia, whatever. Um, but it, it, may, it kind of prepared the ground for us to really think about, what, well, what is women's sexuality? You know, and there are women who love a bit of casual sex and who wouldn't like a grinder app, you know, for those lonely moments? Who wouldn't like those kind of things? But I think perhaps it's, we have to acknowledge that our sexuality is different. And that's okay. The way we express it might be different. It's hard to know when you've kind of been chased out your body for so long. Mm. It's hard to know. But I do know that, you know, dykes entering our culture now have an expectation of, of sex as being part of attraction. Whereas my generation, it was literally about wearing jodhpurs and, and looking longingly at someone who would probably have you arrested. The late 80s, certainly, it, for me, by that point, I was heavily affected by the AIDS crisis. I had so many friends who were ill and dying and died. The overall culture was very sex, very anti-sex, very anti-queer sex, certainly. Mm. And lesbians, despite being a low-risk group and consequently were, were supporting gay men in all kinds of ways, including by giving blood, we did share that, that sense that our sexuality was not just deviant but actually deadly. I remember being, someone described me in a, in a review in a mocking way as in your face. And I was like, no, darling, I'm on your face. <laughs> <laughs> but it was that sense that we just named ourselves everything we'd been called. And we wore it with absolute pride, you know. Um, well, hence Rebel Dykes. Hence Rebel Dykes, you know. Um, so, I mean, I, I mean, I don't even think it's nostalgia. I think it's an incredibly important moment in cultural history of this country um, I think it's incredibly important for the wider queer history using that term as a blanket term um, that we we, we um, acknowledge these heroes and heroines and what they did Whenever I think of the word rebel I think of rebel without a cause and I think of Marlon Brando as Johnny in The Wild One mm. and there's a famous line where, they, where someone says to him, what are you rebelling against Johnny? And he says, what are you got? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what, 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 what were you rebelling against, Joelle? What you got? <laughs> I mean, I was rebelling, uh, I was rebelling because I was, you know, lower working class from, um, I didn't really have a proper hometown, but around and about Lancashire and Yorkshire and Manchester, those sorts of areas I was raised in. I was rebelling against against that cult, like restriction, the limitations of my class, the limitations of my sex, you know, the expectations of me. I always wanted to be a writer. I always wanted to do it and I always wanted to learn. And I didn't want to live the way that I could see, you know, my parents. That's a very common thing. You know, we don't want to live as our parents do or our grandparents. So that's it, that's what I was rebelling against. Rebelling against expectations. 
And remember, we were all from a punk movement as well, which seamlessly morphed into hard house and techno movements, which was all kind of seamlessly merging into the SM nightclubs of that period of time, the fetish clubs. You mentioned last night the whole, that whole modern primitives movement. That yes. Was, yeah, that was that sort of ran through punk and through post-punk and right the way That's into it, the That's it, body 90s, modification. It? I remember, I mean, this is... Do it yourself, the DIY it, aesthetic. Yeah, exactly, do it yourself. So those, I had a couple of friends who were learning to tattoo by tattooing on very drunk lesbians. You know. <laughs> <laughs> who better? Who better to do that with? Um, <laughs> and piercing was a, was a huge thing. I did quite a bit of... Um, self-piercing not with earrings and things like that but like needles because it was part of I guess again exploring what the body was and what it could do um and there, yeah there was a lot of risky play went on as well I mean as lesbians we didn't know then what we know now that we were probably the safest demographic you know it we we weren't none of us were quite sure yeah. how it was being transmitted where we were getting it from um, I remember having and <laughs> promoting the use of dental dams. I had a group, this is no lie, of, of lesbian folk singers called the Dental Dames. <laughs> and at the end of the set, we'd all get a dental dam and put it on and play it like <laughs> one of those little harmonica things. <laughs> Who is your next hero, heroine, and why have you chosen this one? My next one becomes a lot more personal, and it's someone who's become a very close friend to me. His name is Anthony Anaxaguru. He's a poet, writer, broadcaster. And I met Anthony when he was a very, very depressed 17-year-old boy. I'd founded what became known as Slambassadors, National Youth Slam Championships of the UK. For those people who don't know, a slam is the competitive art of performance poetry, spoken word, rapping, emceeing, with or without beatbox, and it's performed in front of a a very, very loud, voluble, energetic crowd. So it's about the communication of the dynamic between performer and audience, as much as it's about who, who's written the best poem. So each poem gets three minutes and it's judged either by professionals, or in this particular, the early ambassadors, it was audience voting before I realized that if you brought a load of people with you, you're gonna win. So Anthony um, rocked up with his mum, very, 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 very depressed young man, and read a poem to me. And then um, it's like the world changed in that moment. You know how, how things become set. So in the early stages, I was just helping him and, you know, helping him develop his work a little bit, providing platforms for him to perform on. And then by the time he was perhaps, I don't know, 19, 20, at the time we go away to university, we just fell out of touch. So years and years pass, I carry on with ambassadors, and then I start to notice Anthony's name around start to appear on the scene again. So we, I get in, oh no, we ended up in a recording studio at the same time, just by chance. So we start talking again, and I'm listening to his work, I'm really impressed by the way it's developed. It's really powerful, really incredible um, spoken word, the victory style of spoken word poetry. Um, and really, the context is that I spent 18 years running Slambassadors and it was a project that was about trying to find kids who were, were like myself growing up with a burning passion to create and no access to the arts whatsoever. No way of ever getting any better. And so it was about building our own platforms for our own people, 
creating community, etc., etc. If you come from a working class background, there literally isn't general access, unless you live in, in a city where you have theatres putting on projects. If you live in a town in the northwest, there's nothing at all. I'd written my first play and I'd never been to the theatre. Never. You know, so it wasn't a, a, a cultural expectation. Um, so that's, that's it, really. It's about, it's about having that raw talent and that raw passion to create, but, but not knowing what to do with it. So I tried to create this as a background, but what happened over the 18 years what's, uh, is that as their voices got louder, and some of these kids became pretty famous, really, certainly in literature, they're multi-prize winners, but my voice is getting smaller as theirs got larger. Until eventually I was uh, tutoring in Arbonne and I invited Anthony to come and co-tutor it with me. And right at the end of the week, we got on really well, right at the end, we decided all to sit around and just read new things we'd all written. Not our usual kind of performance stuff. And I read a poem called Songs My Enemy Taught Me, which is about, um, it's a long set of cantos about being sexually abused as a child, which I'd spent my life trying to write about but couldn't find the words and his reaction was so pivotal it was absolutely pivotal and right there and then he offered me a book contract to write the rest of the book and the book came songs my enemy taught me which fundamentally changed my life and allowed me to tell my story reclaim my own voice instead of just helping other people kind of dig up their own voices and it led to a world tour um so I went to Australia twice with it, uh, Singapore, Thailand, all across Europe, Brazil. Um, and it opened the world to me in the way that I tried to open it for him. Because part of my ethic in the arts is that the microphone isn't a microphone, the pen isn't a pen, they are both batons, like in a relay race. And you get to use the baton, but you have to pass it back to someone else. So it has to become this circular journey if you like where we're helping one another um and for me anthony kind of symbolizes all of that so somebody i helped at the beginning came back to help me and now we're on to the next stage of our journey where we work together in a company anthony founded called outspoken and we're resident artists at south bank center we've got our own publishing press it's anthony's press but i edit for it um sometimes we do live tours, we run masterclasses, we even have the Outspoken Prize for poetry. So, it, yeah, he's a hero, not just because of that, but because of what he's done with words and showed me that there were... To, it showed me how to be courageous and just follow my instinct, just in terms of my own writing, just do the work, and not worry so much about audiences, I'm very audience fixated when I write. You know, I'm, I'm, I can't, I think it's, it's like our working class background. If somebody pays 10 pounds to walk through the door, I don't feel I should be reading my obscure, quiet little work. I feel they want a bit of chest, you know, and a little bit of sweat, um, you know, to feel like you've, bit, you've witnessed something rather than, you know, you've paid for the infinite pleasure of hearing me mumble in a corner for 20 minutes. Um, but he showed me there was another way, which is what you can combine all of that, and and that um, that my work belongs on the page. And if he hadn't done that, I wouldn't have won the T. S. Eliot Prize. I would have carried on, just standing up, 
performing on my work to people, it just becomes this incredibly disposable art form. Like you, every night is its own little book, you know, and then you, you drop the book and walk away to the next night. But having an actual book to hold your words kind of um, gives you a whole new space to work in, but also gives you a sense of belonging and longevity. Can we just talk a little bit more about songs, Naomi taught me, because mm. that had a massive impact on me because I found it so relatable on a personal level as yeah. well. You said that it took you a long time to write that. Was it something that you'd been trying to write and not managing to? Or was it something yeah. that you were just avoiding addressing? Right at the beginning of my career, it's all I wrote about. I wrote a play called Naming, which went on at the Oval House, and was essentially a two-hour poem. So at first, I was really writing directly into it, but in a way that was unusual for 90s work. So it wasn't agitprop theatre, it was surreal physical theatre with poetry going through it. And then it kind of got to a stage, in a very personal stage, where I wanted to move away from all that. And I, I wanted to stop being thought of as somebody who'd been sexually abused because it, it kind of became my identity, you know, and who wants that to be to be their parameters, yeah. you know? And so I kind of moved away from it a little bit and, and started exploring other aspects, uh, you know, like, so the woman who wasn't there is all about being working class yeah. and working with kids in those areas. Songs My Enemy Taught Me was um, a reconnection with the self and a reconnection with my voice, but also an attempt to make, draw lines between my experiences and those of women globally, you know, to different degrees. So it ended up being a project that was like an encyclopedia of how shit are men to women. There's one poem, it's not even a poem, it's an anti-poem, it's called 360, where I just sat at my desk for 24 hours and wrote down headlines about women. Um, and it's really, it's really horrific that in 2022 we're still allowing the subjugation of women globally to continue and we support it in lots of ways. Um, but for me, being able to name my experiences and to make those connections is an incredibly empowering experience. And also, the other part of it is I don't just write books, I tour them. So there's a huge part that we don't really explore, which is what happens when I go on stage and do would, an hour. I, I was going to ask you that, because there's something different then, because then it, it becomes a conversation. Yes. And people present at those performances, readings... Many of them, as we know, it's one of the great underestimated, unspoken things in our culture. There's bound to be somebody there who's had some, yeah. something similar happen to them. There's bound to be. I mean, it, it, was, it was pretty difficult to find anyone who hadn't, to yeah. be honest. Yeah. It was, I mean, but... but um, and there was a lot more grief in the audience. But there's also an, an extraordinary amount of triumph as well. The feeling that... It's a feeling of escape, isn't it, when you name something? It's a feeling of that you're not afraid of it anymore. And also I tell a lot of jokes between poems, which might seem very inappropriate with a book like that, but it does help us because I don't want it to be the sexual abuse, my sexual abuse, to be something that makes everybody really quiet. I want them to see me as, a, as an absolute rounded human 
who's a bit of a dick as well. Watching you performing last night, obviously from not, not from that book, but from Conto, you do introduce elements of comedy. Sometimes in your delivery and the way that you, that you physicalise what you're saying to get a laugh. You yeah. Do, you do do that. Yeah, definitely. Because of <laughs> Desperately. Definitely. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> That's a bit Freudian, wasn't it? <laughs> bit of a giveaway there, Joelle. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's, it's all about, it's about connection, you know, and trying to connect with an audience. And some of it might be, you know, I get a bit, a bit self-depreciating, a bit embarrassed about how serious everything is. Um, but I'm also very aware of the duty of care that a performer has for someone in the audience. And that one of the duty of care I have is to understand the physical body and what it needs. And when you're in a very intense situation, say last night I was aware during my final set of cantos that the atmosphere was thick. It was silent and very tense, very, very tense. And throughout songs tour, I often felt that as well when I was on stage. And sometimes you've got to allow the body to release for a minute. Mm. And that can be a laugh is the easiest way to do it. Or because people don't feel comfortable crying often in public in the same way. Although on Conto Tour, I've had a, a lot of more open crying, a lot more, but really joyful crying. <laughs> <laughs> That's my job, I just make people cry <laughs> for money. You, on that, from that stage last night, because I was on stage with you for a bit, talking to you, um, you, you can't really see beyond the first few faces yes. because of the blinding light but when you were performing I was standing out in the audience and you're absolutely right I mean people was people were really like tightly cogged springs they were really like this mm. but also what I could really sense was I knew you were going to get a full house standing ovation I could see that people were just dying to express yeah. their gratitude and their enthusiasm and their appreciation for you in a very physical way you could just see it and, and being sitting on those not very comfortable um benches for a long period they were just dying to sort of jump up i mean any any excuse they really to... did they really yeah. did i mean they leapt to their feet so fast uh, i think i think they were actually trying to leave Paul. <laughs> so, just they got caught in it and they're like oh shit <laughs> but yeah, it was full-blooded enthusiasm. It was... I mean, I think it's so important the body, obviously, but that us as writers, when we go on tour, to think about it. You know, we know that vo- that saying different words into water. Have you seen this Mr. Moto stuff? No. I think I mean, his name might not be Mr. Moto. <laughs> it's something like that. Um, and he's a, a Japanese scientist and. He discovered that if you say different words into water and freeze it at that moment, they make different shapes. It's incredible, ice crystals. So you say, you know, hate, and it looks like hate. Freezes in the in the shape of hate. You say love, and it makes a love pattern. Seriously look this up, everybody. It's absolutely incredible, because if that's true, if the sound waves generated by different words create these patterns, then what's happening when you and I go on stage and read from our books? What's happening to the water in the 75% of water in the human being? It's really interesting to me, that just basic thing. That's fascinating. Yeah, what what are we... Do you see what I mean? Mm. We know that words are the basis of spells. Don't worry, I'm not going to get (laughs) hippy-trippy. But it's that same idea that words are creating. Not just an idea, but but a change 
in the physical being of people. You know, and we know in slam poetry, we call it the victory poem, and a victory poem is three minutes long. It starts like this, and then it builds, and then it builds, and it builds, and it gets really, really fast and intense by the end. The lines get shorter, because what you're doing is trying to make the audience's heartbeat raise and go faster with yours, with your intention, and the only thick way out of that feeling is to stand up. That's a victory poem. Oh. So that's what Churchill was doing. That's all the great orators. That's what the evangelical priests are doing. Whether they're conscious of it or not, I, I, I don't know. But, but, but I know that there are slam poets who are definitely conscious of that. When you listen to um, audio recordings of James Baldwin speaking, you often hear that. Because right. he, he had that because he was raised by an evangelical. And... So it's the voice of persuasion. It's the absolute, you know, um, yeah, the voice, the voice of persuasion. I, I, I can't describe it in any other way. I mean, my work goes, isn't quite like that. Not each piece is a victory piece. Like, um, I hear music. So that I think of different stanzas or cantos as movements within a wider piece of music. But there are definitely elements, like I know I'm getting angry at this point. And certainly my old spoken words, like I've got a piece called Everything You've Ever Lost, that I actually, like my own heart starts going crazy in it because, because of the, the way the lines are, are, are grafted together and it goes very fast. Um, but the images are very strong for me as, as the, I can see them. So it's almost like being assaulted by different images and sounds. Um, and of course that has an impact on an audience as well. What's happening to your body? What's happening to your breath? And you can already hear my voice. My voice is really sore because I'm doing a lot of touring. But I've also not had my asthma medication for for over a month. Um, so my breath is getting shorter and shorter. So the way I speak has to change when I'm on stage. I can't say a whole line. I run out of breath. Um, and I wonder what does that do to the audience? Because we're, we're empaths. We mimic each other, you know? And you can really see audiences doing it. Um, this all sounds very Svengali like. I really don't go around the world trying to make people breathe the same way as me. Who is your third and final hero, heroine? And again, why have you chosen? Okay, so it's Nina Simone. Nina Simone, I think, is one of the greatest composers and classical pianists and jazz aficionados of all time, of all time. Um, belligerent, bad-tempered, extraordinary-minded, rebellious, defiant, um, you know, and her tying of her art form to, to civil liberties and to politics was hugely inspiring to me. So it's, it's not just the work that she has created her body of work. Again, it's the idea that surrounds her. You've imagined this, this classically trained black woman pianist in these concert halls when she first began, surrounded by this sea of gammon, <laughs> sweaty gammon. Um, make, you know, and to keep that dignity but while you're surrounded by that kind of atmosphere, but she didn't just do that. She didn't just keep her head down and write. She literally challenged the people who come to see her. 
She was defiant in the face of her own audience. That's extraordinary. And I've heard, you know, I've met people who've met her um, and they were all like semi-terrified. I mean, she didn't suffer fools gladly and she certainly didn't suffer white fools gladly, neither should she. Um, but if I could live a life like that, it's so, so tied with, with ideas and politics um, and liberation. Um, that would be a wonderful life, I think. When I was growing up, I was not really aware of her. My mum's was and is a huge Elvis Presley fan, so we had Elvis Presley records mm. on all the time. And then I got into David Bowie, after whom this podcast is named. And when I first heard Wild is the Wind, which wasn't in 76 when it was released as part of Station to Station, it was in 1980, when he, 1980 1981, when he'd left RCA Records and was basically filling time until he did the Let's Dance album and they released mm -hmm. Wild as the Wind as a single and I discovered from reading interviews with him at the time that he that his because it's a cover from a Johnny of a Johnny Mathis song but he based his cover on Nina Simone's cover of yeah. it and they were actually really good friends there's a really really great clip of her on stage in the mid 70s in somewhere in america and she comes on and she says oh, it's david it's david bowie in the audience and it's that wonderful sense that these two icons yeah on the one hand you, you can't think of anyone more different i mean there, there was her the way you described her which is absolutely spot on and then you've got this sort of white well the whitest man they ever lived, possibly, yeah, at that yeah, point, because yeah. he was so thin pale. White Duke. The thin white duke, exactly. <laughs> but they did have a really strong affinity with each other, and you, you can hear in his version of Wild because, the because it's the music, isn't it? It's the work itself, beyond being, uh, you know, rock stars, icons, or whatever. It's the ability to create absolutely But the vocal nothing. performance. Oh, the vocal performances. But um, for me, I mean, to segue into Bowie for a moment, the reason people adore Bowie is the same reason they adore Simone. Um, because it's the actual music is, it gets in your bones. So you hear something, you feel like you've always known it. Yeah. Which is an incredible gift to have. For me, like, um, I think one of my favorite, favorite's not even the right word, one of the most um, affecting songs for me of Simone's catalog is Mississippi Goddamn. Oh my God, yeah. The live version. Yeah. Where you could you can almost hear the discomfort of the audience. Yeah. It's so visceral and she's saying it and she means it. You can you can feel the spit hitting you out the out of the speaker. You know, that's extraordinary. And then you you know, you can juxtapose that with something much lighter like, you know, My baby on. just cares for Thank me. Thank you, that's it. That's the one everyone thinks of when they think of it. Yeah, that's a yeah. You know, so so there's this wild swinging between between and um, wild imaginings of what music can and should do, you know. But Mississippi Goddamn is an absolute heart stopper for me. Um, oh Lord, please don't let me be misunderstood. I mean, it's iconic sounds, iconic. But uh, yeah, when I think of her, I think about her alone in a very dignified way at a piano not necessarily creating a jazz or pop tune, but exploring everything those keys can do and can offer. I remember in, in the late 80s, I shared a flat with a guy called Vaughan Michael Williams, who was part of a gay cabaret troupe called The Insinuendos. 
and he was really into Nina Simone. In particular, he used to listen to the Baltimore album all the time. Vaughan was the first person I knew who died of AIDS, and mm. I can't hear that album without thinking of him, so it, yeah. it makes me very sad. But it's a very beautiful record, that record. I mean, the range on that album as well. I mean, the sort of the, the gospel-y, yeah. um, the soul-y stuff, the jazzy stuff, and then the sort of this really gut-wrenching stuff on there as really, well. Really, <laughs> really, really gut-wrenching. That's the real attraction to me, to her as an artist, is gut, visceral. It's the passion and then the craft that goes on top of that which she can then, once you, you see, once you have the craft and you have the passion, you can let go of the craft because the, it's there. It's yeah. the skeleton of the work, you know, and, and focus on that viscerality, um, which again is about connection. That's it. I can see her now in my, in my head. She's this, it's that old footage. Where was she playing something like Carnegie Hall in this huge concert theatre? And she's just in the middle during a time of you know uprising during a time of you know increased sanctions against black people at the time of apartheid um, the color bar in the, in the states and she, there she is in this whitest of white venues surrounded by lights and cameras and people men in tuxedos and women in these ballroom dresses and she's just in the middle tinkling away telling them they're cunts yeah literally and they've all paid a huge <laughs> amount of money for that privilege you know, and I was just like, I want to be you. You, you, you know, to have that sense of, of, of rage and power and dignity, because it's very dignified. I mean, there are later stories about her coming and shooting people. I mean, you know, <laughs> we all make mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> that clip you just described where she's performing, um, that's, I'm pretty sure, is in that documentary... What Happened Miss Simone on, yeah. on Netflix. And if people haven't seen it, they should they should go and watch mm. that because it's an amazing documentary and you really get a sense of just how political she was. Yes. And how damaged she was. It's a fully rounded portrait of a flawed human being, but an absolute... It was genius. I think, mm. she, I think she was a genius. I agree with you. No, absolute genius. An absolute genius. Um whose music is ingrained in us. It's really interesting to me. I think more people are aware, more people know her music than they're aware of. Yes, definitely. It's kind of become the way we do things. And obviously, My Baby Just Cares For Me, that was a massive hit in the 80s. It was a revival. Yeah. Do you remember there was that weird little cartoon that went with it? Yes, it was It was part of that whole 80s phenomenon which started with the Levi's ad, wasn't it? Which is That's basically it. playing, taking old 50s songs. Because the 80s was very nostalgic for the 50s, wasn't yeah. it? The look was very based on that. So you had all these songs that were used, heard it through the grapevine and things like that, were mm. used on commercials. And suddenly she had a hit again with that, yeah. with that old track. It is a lovely track, but it's, it's not remotely emblematic of her work as a whole. No, it, it's, like, it's like the phone jingle version of something she does. But still utterly compelling. Yeah. I mean, I challenge anyone not to listen to those key changes for the first time and not stop tapping their foot. Um, but then once you know her, it starts to feel really quite cynical. Like when you hear her voice, you're like, yeah. she is really ripping us up now. <laughs> um, but yeah, for me, the heart is the, the, the live versions of work. Um, I can't remember the name of the one. It's the one with all the hand clapping. 
It's just lots of hand clapping. Oh, yeah. She sings over the top. And I think it's the first time as a student I'd heard that kind of thing being done in such of a, a, a wide space, such a big, big venue. If you had to choose one song, just one song of hers, of all the ones you love, and, and you could only have the one, what one would it be? Do you know, I'm going to stick with Mississippi Goddamn. The live version. The live version, just because of because art is more than the thing created. It's what can be created between people. And I can hear it on that track. And I can hear the rage. And I can I can hear Malcolm X. And I can hear, you know, um, the whole of the civil rights movement in that moment. And the pain and anger. And it's bloody well written. Lyrically, that's the other thing. Lyrically, she's a great lyricist. So it's not just about her ability to compose music, but, you know, it's, um, she marries words and music beautifully. As do you. Thank you, darling. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking part in it's this. I joy. really appreciate it. It's been a joy. Thank you, Paul. And I wish you all the best of luck with it. My thanks to Joelle Taylor. And to find out more about her and her work, please visit her website at joeltaylor.co.uk. This has been We Can Be Heroes with me, Paul Burstam. Please subscribe and join me next time. Thanks for listening.